Welcome to episode 30 of Shelf Love. Each week, we use romance novels as the text to explore identity, relationships, and the society that we live in. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and this week I'm joined by Cherish Reed, author of Hearts on Hold, a librarian romance. On this episode, we talk about why we should really stop shitting on majoring in English and aha moments in teaching. The romance worth reading that we discuss is White Whiskey Bargain by Jody Slaughter, and we get into low angst romance, marriages of convenience, just one bed, owning land as the American dream, and baddies who are entitled assholes. Also, I had a cold when I recorded this episode, so my voice sounds a little weird, but the show had to go on. But first, a quick message about what's going on in the world right now. Cherish and I recorded this episode back on February 2nd, 2020, and I am recording this intro on March 23rd, 2020. We are currently in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and so I just wanted to send my best to you, dear listener. I hope you are well, I hope your loved ones are well, and I hope that the worst thing you are dealing with right now is boredom because you are self-isolating. I think in times of uncertainty like this, it's more important than ever to celebrate stories of love and community. In addition to keeping up with my regularly scheduled Shelf Love episodes, I also started a mini-series of 10 episodes called the Decameron Quarantine Romance Book Club. They are short, casual conversations with three romance experts on each episode, and my guests bring a romance novel they'd recommend that relates to the theme. And then, of course, we discuss. You can listen to the first episode on the theme of Kink, which is out now, with guests Katie Robert, Karelia Stetz-Waters, and Katrina Jackson, and there will be more coming every week. I hope you enjoy this episode with Cherish Reed. So my name is Cherish Reed, and I live in Sweden, Örebro, Sweden, with my husband, and we're both uh, professors. Uh, I teach at the local university, Örebro University. I teach rhetoric, literature, and cultural studies. When I'm not teaching, I'm obviously writing. I've written two books, The Right Escape and Hearts on Hold, which is actually out tomorrow. Ooh! And... Yeah. <laughs> so pretty pumped about that. But yeah, I'm ugh, 30, 35 and finally starting my writing career. I'm cutting back on teaching and I'm pretty excited for this new chapter in my life. Also, yeah, living in Sweden counts as that new chapter. <laughs> is that is this move to Sweden fairly recent? We moved May 2018. So we're almost coming up on two years. That's super cool. That's like a big leap to, to just, <laughs> I don't know, go live in a foreign country where you, I presume, have no like familial connections or nope. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Uh, we're pretty reckless people. And I think with us both being in academia where things are maybe not the most stable in the United States, it was time to find something more stable in a completely different country, which is reckless, but we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw on your bio that you're an adjunct and I've been an adjunct. So <laughs> it's terrible. But I'm curious how adjuncting is different in like, for example, a Swedish institution. Is it pretty much the same as at an American institution? <laughs> I learned the hard way that yes, it is the same thing. <laughs> Fun. Yeah, I came here and I thought like, ooh, uh, you know, great labor practices. And it turns out 
it's just the same wherever you go. If you're a non-tenure track teaching person, it's just as unstable and you you get paid this, uh, I don't know, the same amount as an adjunct in America and you still don't have health benefits or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Sweden, so everybody has health benefits, but you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. It's not like solid employment the way a job, no. like a like a tenure track job would be. And so does that explain why, it, let's say, part of the fantasy of your books is, is you're writing about characters that are like tenure track? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, how I wish for some stability. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> It's nice, especially the last book, I have a black female professor. So yeah, I don't want her to struggle quite as much as I do. But she does have a best friend who is an adjunct. And so you get two sides of the story, I suppose. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I was adjuncting when I got pregnant. And so I legitimately planned it to be my daughter was born in May. Oh, so it was like, okay, great. So then I can have a baby and then I'll be home with her for three months and then I'll start teaching again in September. Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, that's so nice. You know, how much time do you have off? And I'm like, none. I'm just not paid. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Like, I'm just unemployed. That's what's yeah. happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's horrible. But, you know, I'm actually better off than most. Uh, my husband is the, the full-time professor And so I'm able to do, you know, my writing and not feel quite as under the gun about gathering up as many courses as I can in one semester. Which romance novels or novelists would you say are your influences? I've only started reading romance in earnest for the last three-ish years. I think I was reading them a little bit when I was in my teens, maybe fell out of that and then came back in like like a juggernaut. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, and when I got back to reading them, I was like, ooh, I'm pleasantly surprised at how diverse they are now. So, I really like, you mentioned her early, Katrina Jackson has been wonderful to read. I like her for her sultry scenes. She's got a lot of sexual tension, and I take note of that. Rebecca Weatherspoon, and she's, you know, she's got the sexy cinnamon bun characters, the heroes. Mm -hmm. And she has, I would say, like, low anxiety, low stakes conflict that I really appreciate. And I kind of wanted to mimic that in some sort of way. And um, maybe Tessa Dare. I like her. She's got really fun and quirky heroines that are always up to some shenanigans with their their book learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, geologists, uh, yeah. astronomers, uh, yeah, other stuff. <laughs> like smart gals who um you know are learning how to kiss for the first time and it's really adorable and and also very sexy but i like her intrepid heroines i think we should encourage tessa dare to take on smart gals learning how to kiss for the first time (laughs) that was like my favorite part of a week to be wicked just her learning how to kiss in the underwater cave So the book that you're writing currently involves a heist. 
So speaking of research, can you tell me about your heist research? And do you have any favorite heists from pop culture or real life? Ooh, okay. So this book is moving like molasses because (laughs) I've been trying to teach and write it at the same time. So I've I've been doing a lot of research in the meantime when I'm not able to write. And I'm all over the place with the research. Of course, I'm watching my favorite heist movies like Ocean's Eleven because there's a lot of moving parts and so many different characters. I'm also watching Thomas Crown Affair, which I think is the sexiest heist. Oh, For sure. I was watching the trailer of that the other day, and I was like, do they just have sex nonstop? (laughs) You wish, but... I've seen the movie. I mean, like, I have seen the movie, but watching the trailer, I was like, oh my god, like, wow. (laughs) There is heisting, but there's, like, an equal amount of will they, won't they, and is she going to abandon her career for this break? (laughs) Also, I love the Catherine Zeta-Jones and Sean Connery film Entrapment. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. I mean, I remember when it came out, because I also remember it like looked really sexy and like fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's like, I don't know, 30 years her junior. but <laughs> or, Wait, you mean her uh, senior? Her senior, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he's, I can't remember if that's one of the movies that Sean Connery actually went without a hairpiece. Oh, maybe I was just remembering Catherine Zeta-Jones being sexy. Maybe that's it. I mean, she's always sexy. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, those movies are kind of my favorite. But more serious stuff, I've been reading geology textbooks because I need need a reminder on earth science related things. You know, if they're going to be stealing jewels, I need to know about jewels. And I've been researching security systems for (laughs) museums. (laughs) My husband and I, I want us to go to Stockholm, which is about two hours away from where we live. And I just want to do some museum research, like where are the exits and how many security guards are on post (laughs) at a given time. (laughs) So you want to stake out a museum is what you're saying? Basically. And I'm uh, (laughs) hoping that this is a great tax (laughs) write-off. I kind of feel like based on your, I don't know what privacy laws are like in Sweden, based on your internet search history, I feel like you might (laughs) be facing some extra security. (laughs) I think I'm going to be fine. I'll just, (laughs) I'll let them know I'm a writer. I'm not researching dead bodies or anything. A likely story. Just heisting. (laughs) I have to say, I think my favorite thing about heists is part of it was I read in the excerpt that you have on your blog, where Mm. like con artists or people involved in heists, they kind of have like these names for the (laughs) the things they do. And I feel like that showed up in Ocean's Eleven a lot, where they're like, oh, you want to do the... The Ella Fitzgerald or something. Exactly. Right. And you're like, what the hell is it? And in Ocean's Eleven, they never explain it, which is kind of part of the fun. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes you see it and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. But sometimes they just they just run through them and they're never explained. 
But so I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And then I love just the complex plans that then it's it's really just competence porn mm-hmm. where <laughs> you're yeah. like, oh my God, you guys are so good at this. And you have this complex plan and you we think that you've been caught, but it was all part of the plan. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> I know. The, uh, the bait and switch kind of thing. Right. So the characters in this, they used to pull heists together and the heroine is still out. She's still an art thief, but the hero has kind of tried to go straight as, and he's a geology professor. Right. Yeah. So when they were younger, they both had the same mentor. Her name is Dr. Doris Grant. And Dr. Doris Grant was an international thief lady of mystery i think i i've patterned her off of have you heard of the elderly black woman doris geez now i can't remember her name but she's like rather famous for stealing jewels and she's still doing it she's like in her 80s now (laughs) and people know about her and she still gets away with it i think she may have settled down but every once in a while she'll hit up like a jc penny's uh (laughs) jewelry (laughs) counter uh, they're actually going to make a movie about her life. Anyway, I've based the mentor off of that real woman. And these two, they used to be together. They used to steal together. And Magnus Larson decided he's had enough of this after a almost, you know, tragic accident or almost fatal accident that could have left Celeste dead. So he's like, I'm out. And she's like, no, I'm still in. I'm all for the thievery cause. Mm -hmm. But 10 years later, they've been called back together because Dr. Grant has died. And she's left them one more heist. Because I think, you know, the old lady wanted them to stay together. (laughs) Oh, it's a matchmaking scheme. It is. Yes. Sweet. So, yeah, like I said, it's moving really slow. And I'm hoping that I'll have the competence porn that you're looking for, because I I still don't know what the mark is yet. I don't know what it is that they're supposed to steal. <laughs> Ooh, a mystery. Maybe <sighs> just maybe just write the whole book not knowing, and then just like the you know I don't know the last three chapters. Just don't even worry about it until then. Okay. <laughs> that's how that's how writing works, right? <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Thank you. (laughs) Are you a pantser or a plotter? Uh, I think I'm a mixture of both. The first two books were definitely written with some laid out plot in mind, but uh, you do have to allow yourself to let go of the reins a little bit, write yourself into corners and fuck up and then go back to the original plan if need be. That's usually the way I write. Mm Mm-hmm. If the uh, detailed outline I sent you ahead of this conversation wasn't clear, whenever I tried to write romance, I was a (laughs) plotter. (laughs) Let's create a modern romance canon. What do you think? Which romance novel would you nominate to be part of the modern romance canon? Just one, you say? Just you can nominate just one. There's gonna look. It's the canon is not comprised of just one book, but you can nominate one. Christ, I <laughs> I would say I feel pretty comfortable with anything that Alyssa Cole has written. I don't want to make her uncomfortable with this kind of fawning, but uh, <laughs> I feel like she's she's written some books 
that have showed me so much with so many wildly interesting characters with so much, uh, I think, emotional depth. I'm just speaking for me, but, you know, I would put a couple of Alyssa Cole books up there. Okay, so if if you had to choose just one? Oh, okay. I mean, they're all great, but... (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'll go with uh, Duke by default. Mm -hmm. I think that one might be my favorite. Yeah. Can you remind me, what's the plot of A Duke by Default? Uh, the young woman who gets a job uh, in Scotland. Oh, this with the sword maker? Yeah, that's right. Sword Bay. Okay, cool. Yes. Uh, I love blacksmiths too, so this is immediately mm-hmm. coming up my list. <laughs> All that banging. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's it's the shirtless sweatiness also. Yes. I do love Alyssa Cole. And if anything was going to make Alyssa Cole uncomfortable with the fawning, it would be episode 17 where Kat Jackson and I talk about <laughs> an unconditional freedom. That was a really good episode. <laughs> oh, thank you. I am not embarrassed by fawning, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Compliments anyways. Thank you. Yeah, Kat Jackson is amazing. And I could talk to her for like 8 trillion hours yeah. about anything. Oh my God. <laughs> I listened to that and I was just thinking, Jesus Christ, how am I going to... How am I going to sound smart? I'm also a professor, but I don't know if I'm going to sound that smart on Andrea's show. <laughs> <laughs> she was ugh, amazing. She was amazing. I, I cannot imagine being a student in her class. And I'm just like, they don't even know what brilliance they have in front of them. No, no. And I feel like I would step up my game if I were a student in her class. <laughs> I know. I feel like students never – see, now this is where I just complain about students. Okay, go ahead. So here's my gripe is um, I think a lot of students are not getting educated for the right reasons. Like they're like, oh, okay, I have to like go to these classes and like get these, you know, credits and graduate, blah, 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 so I can get a job. Yeah. And do not approach the classroom with the actual objective of learning. Like many of them approach it like, how do I get an A? Mm, just yeah. like what's the check boxes that I just need to check and are not really trying to like internalize the lessons and like think more critically and I think I think a lot that students would benefit from having a little bit more like real world experience before coming back to college yeah because I think that they would take it seriously or not take it for granted you know because when you've if you've just been you know 13 years straight of school and then you go off to college, it just feels like more of, the, more of the same instead of like, wow, this is really an opportunity to explore things, you know, and I'm never really going to have a chance to do this again unless I start a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. No, I, I know. What, I have struggled with this too. Um, and I, since coming out here and teaching in Sweden, I've seen like a vast difference between my American students and my Swedish students. Yeah, I I have had that experience where, you know, you're trying to reach the kids and uh, it doesn't seem like it's taking or whatever. And it's that whole, well, I'm bored. And also the stakes are a little higher for my American students because they believe if I don't get this A and I don't pass this class and I don't get this degree, then I will never have a job. I think they have a very high stakes nihilist look at education and that's not necessarily their fault in Sweden where the schooling here is basically free. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I get uh, some really relaxed students who do come into the classroom who are like, you know, 
tell me more about this uh, Du Bois you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, you you want to stay after class and talk more? What? <laughs> They're more invested because they they will not have the crushing debt after their degree. Very true. And I do have a lot more non-traditional students, um, students who are older, who have children, who are coming back for you know reasons to better themselves or whatever. And I'm sure you know this, your non-traditional students tend to be like hard workers, maybe more engaged, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it, I've noticed a huge shift between these two countries and their education systems based on the cost. And I don't know if that's going to help American students. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough, uh, Kat and I also talked about that in a conversation that will come out when we talk about it's in the polyamory conversation, actually. Ooh. So that'll be released probably before this is released. But mm-hmm. so go check it out, listeners. <laughs> but we were talking about, yeah, I mean, like how how much debt, I mean, particularly student debt, student loans are impacting people's financial lives. Yeah. And it is so interesting when you take like an individual's circumstances in terms of like how much debt they're taking on to go to school you know, their relative privilege, all of that. And then think about how they then act in the classroom and how much they're taking away from their education. Like, I feel like there are some people who might say, well, if you give it to people for free, they don't appreciate it Mm -hmm. and they won't take advantage of it. And it sounds like your experience is the exact opposite, that the more anxiety you kind of place around the value of something, it's like people almost seem to like shut down, you know, like, well, okay, I have to get value out of this and kind of tangible value, like a job seems much more important than the intangible value of like learning something. Yeah, I mean, I've had students who were like, oh, this English class is cool or whatever, but I can't major in it. And I secretly I'm like good don't <laughs> but you know the 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 scholar part of me is like oh but come on there's like so many cool things over here and I'm, I can't really argue with them about how this is going to help them get a job I mean I could but I, I'm kind of tired of that these days they'll figure it out one day how much they needed my help with writing or analyzing or rhetoric or whatever yeah so it's really difficult for students to understand how important the humanities are. It's getting harder for the people who teach humanities to prove their worth to their school administrators. It's just getting hard all around. Yeah. Well, and so I have two comebacks to that. Not that anyone asked, but... Yeah. So number one, my husband has a degree in English and Mm -hmm. is a software engineer currently. Oh, okay. And he comes to the problem-solving aspects of writing code in a way that I think people who majored in computer science are really at a disadvantage. Mm. Because, I mean, uh, writing code is logic. Yeah. And I think also a lot of writing code is like understanding requirements and being able to communicate with other people to actually build something. Mm. So it's almost like those those communication skills, the ability to kind of parse information and analyze it and ask the right questions and 
communicate effectively in writing. And I think that if you learn how to communicate well in writing, then that extends out to your ability to communicate better conversationally. I'd like to think so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I feel like there are so many times and in my own experience, I mean, I had a really literal, like my bachelor's degree is writing literature and publishing. Mm -hmm. And I went into publishing. And then now what I do is very marketing focused, Mm. usually around content. So like, I I feel like I'm basically doing the same thing, but just for different reasons. But I feel like, like marketing is something that I know it's kind of seen as like a soft part of the business world. But marketing is... Oh, it's incredibly important. (laughs) Incredibly important and incredibly valuable. And I think that understand... I mean, it's communication. It's all just communication. (laughs) The better better you can understand information and communicate information. I mean, these are just like core things that are needed in business. And I wish students and school... I wish schools would really make the argument for how you are building these skills because who cares like what technical accounting software you can learn in school or mm-hmm. like there there are these like very like functional things that you can learn in the classroom but things change so rapidly out in the professional world yeah. that learning that stuff is much less useful than just learning these foundational skill building things that are going to make you a good professional and then you can learn the other stuff later like on the job you're not going to learn everything you need to know to succeed in business and school but I, I think the best thing you could focus on learning is the humanities damn it andrea Ugh, you got it that is exactly what i'm going to tell students okay <laughs> good <laughs> No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And and to add on to that, the ability to remain flexible, I think, is closely tied with learning rhetoric, learning analysis, and it keeps you on your toes no matter what materials are being thrown at you. You know how to break it down and then hopefully communicate it to others. And yeah, you're making me feel pretty good <laughs> about my profession. <laughs> what you do is so important and... <laughs> You are not valued as highly as you should be. Fuck no. But I cherish, I value you. (laughs) Thanks. And I bet you're going to have some students who are, you know, 10 years down the road or or maybe longer or whatever, or maybe shorter, are going to look back and they're going to be doing something. They're going to be like, I am so glad that Professor Cherish, whatever your actual last name that you teach under (laughs) is, uh, taught me this stuff because now... I am excelling at giving this PowerPoint presentation to the board of directors. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't know if I'll ever see that or hear it. Those are the kind of fantasies that I have in order to keep me going sometimes. Um, I will say that I did have one of those aha moments and what does Oprah call them? Aha. Um, where, I had just finished teaching W.E.B. Du Bois duality, like in blackness, to my Swedish students and the veil and learning how to be one way amongst your people, amongst black people, and then another way in a white space or how the white space views you. So like context switching? Yeah, this 
dualism, how blacks are amongst themselves and how they perceive themselves versus how white America mm, okay. perceives them. Oh, I see. More more about the perception, as you just said. Yes, exactly. And I was teaching this to my Swedish students who are, you know, majority Scandinavian, but a sprinkling of Middle Eastern uh, immigrants who have lived in Sweden for quite a while. And I do remember one Armenian student coming up to me afterward and saying, thank you for that lesson, because that is how I feel in Sweden as someone who belongs here, kind of, but someone who is on the outside. And I have these ideas of how Swedish whites view me or perceive me versus how I see myself and I'd never heard of it like that. And so thank you. And I I wanted to cry as I was wiping down <laughs> the whiteboard. <laughs> oh, like, I mean, giving language, giving a way for people to articulate the way they're feeling is so powerful. It is. And, and it meant a lot to me that she got something out of that lesson. Of course, I had to play it cool and be like, yeah, you know, read more Du Bois. Uh, but inside, I was just like, oh, my God, I've done this. I've done this for you. <laughs> oh, you made a difference. I did. <laughs> what a fantastic put that put what you need to do is I, I've started doing this. Sorry, I'm, I'm being very instructory. Like you need to do this. But, <laughs> no, you're um, fine. <laughs> keep like a, a document of some kind of like emails or comments or like, you know, basic transcriptions of like things people have said to you that really made you feel good or really like where you felt like somebody saw you yeah. and made you feel really good. Because I'm sure that this is a thing that has been studied, but we tend to remember like much more the negative Ooh, yes. interactions we have and forget those really positive ones. And I think it's important to remember when you're doing something and you're kind of feeling beaten down by, you know, the administration, not really fully respecting your department yeah. and like just being an adjunct and students who are <laughs> checking social media like while in class. <laughs> You yeah. just remember, remember the that it may not look like it, but you're making a difference. Oh, you're right. I'm gonna just, I'm gonna start doing that. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. If you want to make your commitment to the Shelf Love podcast a little more permanent, I'd love to take your name. Did you know that Shelf Love has an email newsletter? Take a moment and sign up via the link in the show notes for bonus content like book recommendations, the Superlatives episode printable book list, giveaways, and all the Shelf Love news that's fit for impolite society. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join the Shelf Love community. So do you want to talk about White Whiskey Bargain? Ooh, yes. I'm so excited about this book. I've been, well, I've only talked to my husband about it, and he's kind of tired. He's <laughs> like, thank God you're going to talk to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, get it out. So why do you think White Whiskey Bargain by Jody Slaughter is a romance novel worth reading? Christ, let's see. Badass, kick-ass heroine who's just like trying to find her way in, you know, in the wake of her mom's death. She's taken over the family business, which is moonshining and rum running or whatever. And she's trying to keep it together for the sake of all these people on the mountain that depend on her. And I think she's doing a pretty kick-ass job. And, oh, my God, I love a marriage of convenience. <laughs> <laughs> and I love whiskey. I mean, I love whiskey. And I love any character who's like, I'm going to 
break it down for you and show you the mechanics of, you know, how we distill it, how we produce it, how we, you know, bootleg it. And it's a exciting and sexy industry, of course. It's, you know, secret. But to have a black woman in charge of all of that, ah, man, I, it just couldn't get any better. Hannah is... Her mother died suddenly, and now she's in charge of her family's moonshine business. Mm -hmm. Javier is the son of the leader of their family's moonshine business, and they've kind of been rival families for a while, but now there's a new threat from the outside. And so they use the oldest binding method available, and it's a marriage to to bring the families together. (laughs) And... And so it starts off very much a marriage of convenience, mm-hmm. but as they are in each other's lives, it's starting off as a marriage of convenience almost makes it a little bit harder for them to acknowledge that there's a lot of sexual tension, a lot of deep respect for each other. Yeah. I, I think Javier was interesting because he is very much a, uh, I, I, uh, I, so I struggle using these words, but he's kind of like a beta hero where mm-hmm. he is like all about Hannah the alpha heroine being yes. being in the lead, taking charge. He's like, yeah, I'm just here to support you. I don't want to be in charge of my family. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't want to be uh, a leader in this type of industry. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not a story of like, they are not rivals so much as their families sort of are. And then they, they're kind of coming to terms with the fact that they are not each other's enemy mm-hmm. and that they have a lot more in common with each other than they have not in common. Right. And so one of the things you wanted to talk about was people of color in Appalachia. So Hannah and most of the community that are involved in their moonshine business are black. Mm -hmm. And then Javier's family came from Mexico several generations ago, I believe, Mm -hmm. and has been in Appalachia. And one thing that I thought was super interesting was that although they both, I think especially Javier's family, had sort of like cultural like unique cultural they had like vestiges of their like mexican culture that they were still holding on to in a lot of ways culturally hannah's family and javier's family were very similar yeah they're like this group of forgotten people that was taken advantage of when coal mining was active in the mountains Mm -hmm. and then when that died away they they're just kind of like left there and they're like okay fine we're gonna make our own way here and Mm -hmm. maybe it's a little bit illegal but <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but it's going to be, it, we're going to work together and we're going to support our community and like nobody from the outside's helping. So we're going to do it ourselves. That is one aspect about this book that I really love. Just this, this community and this bond. It, I don't know. It's like fast and the furious. We're all family <laughs> and we're, mm-hmm. we're rum running or whatever. I think, just based on its location, uh, people of Appalachia have always had this very small island kind of mentality where people not on the mountain don't get it, you know? I think you're right, and both of the families are very similar because they, they know the stakes of this mountain living, they know the traditions, they know the outsiders might be out to get them, whether it be law enforcement or this mean character that comes up or, you know, just people who don't quite understand the mountain life, I guess, yeah, in the mountains. I really appreciated that we got to see a glimpse of black people and brown people because, you know, 
when we hear about Appalachia, we think mostly of white hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And when we think of moonshining, we think of white people hiding out uh, in the brush with overalls. And- yes. <laughs> Without a shirt on underneath. That's the yes. picture I have. And I'm sorry. I know that is... Uh, a harmful stereotype. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think that is kind of like how pop culture represents the people of Appalachia. And what's that movie? Deliverance. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. everyone's sort of like mental image. Yeah. But you mentioned like the coal mining industry. You know, people forget that black folks were leaving the South in droves during that first wave of the Great Migration to escape all kinds of Jim Crow nonsense. And a lot of them ended up in Appalachia doing these coal mining jobs. I mean, they couldn't take enough people from the South. And yeah, just like white people, when the the coal mining goes under, we're not doing that anymore you know, black folks lose out as well. So I I thought it was really important to shine some light on that because black people and brown people are in these states (laughs) Mm -hmm. living, living and working. Yeah. And I feel like so the the baddie, the baddies in this story are this sort of like privileged, rich, entitled family that reminded me so much of some figures that are very uh, active today, like hmm. like a really rich guy and his two goony sons. Do, uh, do tell. What are you thinking? Um, <laughs> let's see. What's the name? What's the name? <laughs> I won't say it. We all know. Um, yeah. But I I wonder. I would be very curious if Jody Slaughter like had them in mind because, oh my Ooh. god. Well, the sons were kind of dumb. yeah they were but they were they were just the epitome of entitlement where literally what what you find out the conflict this guy has it out for javier's family because at one point in time Mm -hmm. the the guy's drunk father (laughs) sold a piece of land while he was deep in his cups to somebody in javier's family like javier's grandfather or something and this guy has a bee in his bonnet because he thinks that land is his. It is an inconsequential mm-hmm. piece of land. They wouldn't even do anything with it. But he doesn't just want to buy it back. He literally believes that he is entitled to it and that he should just be given it. And he'll yeah. use every intimidation and manipulative play in the book to make that happen. <laughs> like He's just going to menace people. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, the land part, I thought was something really interesting, because Slaughter made a point to mention both Hannah's home, and Javier's father's home. Those were really old staples in the community, like, you know, great grandfather built this house for great grandmother or whatever. And that land owning thing was really important to them. And really important to me as a reader because I guess the American dream we've all we've all come to believe is supposed to be owning a home but also owning land that's when you've really solidified your your bond to the land or to the community and I was so excited that these two minority families had that stake 
like this is my land this is my history and then some asshole blows in and says no wait that's mine and i'm just like what (laughs) yeah it's it's just like it's mind-boggling but you know when you think about the history of the united states there are so many instances Mm -hmm. where white i mean they had no claim to it ever at any point in time but they're just like oh yeah this is ours now yeah and you know obviously that's something that happened with indigenous people in, in the United States. Indeed, yes. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those maps where they're like, this is like how the population grew in the United States from like, you know, 1600 and on. Mm. And, it, you know, it like starts like spreading outward from like the Northeast. And you're like, um, yeah, no, there were a ton of people <laughs> elsewhere. I, I know that you didn't count them, maybe. But, uh, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. It's, yeah, it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder of who else is lost out in this grand scheme of manifest destiny. And, uh, yeah, go on. (laughs) Oh, I don't know if I had a point other than just it's, it is mind boggling what it takes for people to treat other people like that. I mean, there's, there's dehumanization involved mm-hmm. we'd be remiss to ignore the racial component oh yeah of the baddies i didn't bother to learn their names <laughs> <laughs> their entitlement was it wasn't just an affront that somebody else had taken their land or that some into their thinking i'm sure like ignorant appalachian hillbillies had taken right. their land but on top of that mexicans right yes and that black people were going to help them keep it right like (laughs) no you can't ignore that at all and i'm glad it all works out in the end but you know there are a few tense moments in the book where i was like oh my gosh this guy is really going to menace these folks uh for no no real good reason You know, speaking of angst-free or low angst romances, I think the romance between Hannah and Javier is fairly low angst. Like, yes, there's a moment in particular where I was like, "Oh God, no! This is going to be a her intentions are good, but he's going to misinterpret them, and it's going to keep him apart, and then they're going to have to have like a big mm. th- to do." And there's like a tense moment, but it all comes out immediately and it is resolved in a way that makes them stronger. And I'm like, thank you. I don't need this like false conflict. Yes. No. Um, Are you talking about the part where Hannah's like, well, maybe we should keep things separate? Oh, I was actually, (laughs) I was actually thinking about later when the baddie tries to split them apart by threatening her family and getting her to turn against Javier's family. Yes. Okay. I would agree with you. I think Slaughter definitely saved the angst for the external plot for Mm -hmm. how do we have this showdown with these bad guys. Yeah, the last few chapters were hella exciting. Mm -hmm. But the relationship itself, they're both pretty mature people who may have had a misunderstanding, like a misstep at one point. Then Javier's like, you know what, I'm going to tell her what I think about this and we're going to talk about it. And that was that, like, okay, well, I see where you're coming from. I'll try to be better. Mm-hmm. They were two pretty emotionally mature people put together who could work together pretty well 
and I don't know, care and support for one another. Yeah. And I love how Javier in particular learned from his failed marriage where he still, both of them still had deep respect for each other. They realized, I think in particular, how Javier had not done the best he could or he should have done better in the marriage. But they still were, they had a nice conversation when they ran into each other at the grocery store. And I like that Javier's dawn of realization about how even though he was trying to turn over a new leaf, he had fallen back into old patterns, Mm. came from that conversation. And it it was like a light bulb where he like rushes home to (laughs) work on fixing things. And I love that Hannah didn't have to be the one to, I mean, because she wasn't going to, I, you know, the way her character was built, she was trying to put more distance between them for right. because, you know, she's like, whatever, we're just going to annul this marriage when this blows over. And that's what we got into this for. And Javier's the one who's actually more, I think, motivated to make it work. <laughs> and so she's not going to challenge him to be more emotionally vulnerable, you know? He has to do the work himself. Yeah. Which was really exciting. It was really exciting. <laughs> and I, th- I think you're right about like their relationship was lovely to watch. And then you have this backdrop of this like kind of, it, it's like illicit, like they, they kidnap the two <laughs> dumb, dumb yeah. sons. Yeah. And so I think this is one of those novels where you you have to just be like, it's like moral relativism. Yeah. Where you're like, all right, this is just the world we're in. I have no problem with them doing this. It's what they needed to do. Like Javier literally is like putting duct tape over some guy's mouth and like dragging him, like, you know, knocking him out. And I'm like, yeah, you go. Of course, they deserve it. Um, yeah, you. we just have to suspend our moral disbelief here and (laughs) (laughs) we're we're cheering for them nonetheless i will say that about uh javier being so anxious about righting his past wrongs and maybe not being in a hurry to get divorced or annulled at one point i did make a note haha this is very ross geller Uh, Because he was like, you know, I don't want to have three divorces or two divorces. Mm -hmm. And it made me laugh, but I did feel for him. And oh my God, can we talk about the the wife husband titles Mm. and how easily those two were just batting it back and forth? Yes. And also, this is also how my husband and I communicate with each other. <laughs> so I'm like, what do you want, husband? And he's like, I don't know, wife. So Aww. so this also was like personally very resonant with me. But please go yeah. on. <laughs> oh, I just loved it. I love when the characters, well, I guess in this particular type of trope where they they really have fun playing it up, playing up the the whole, well, we're in this situation, so let's lean into it with these cute jokes. And I think that was something that Zinni, Rebecca Weatherspoon's mm-hmm. uh, book, did really well, and that always made me uh, happy. Which was another marriage of convenience. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I, I loved how they had these terms and conditions right when they sit down and agree to this, like, well, what do you expect of me and and vice versa? And, you know, the having dinner at home together. Mm-hmm. Oh, Christ. <laughs> it was just so nice and sweet. Yeah. And cooking for her. 
oh my gosh, the cooking. Mm -hmm. And I liked how, so this was like his way of showing love and appreciation for her. And I mean, and he seemed to like cooking and he was good at it. And when they're kind of ironing out the details of the marriage, what it's going to be like, she's very defensive and she's like, oh, you expect me to cook for you? And he's like, no, (laughs) I mean... Like, if, like, it'd be nice if you cook sometimes, but, like, I'll, I can cook. Like, I'll cook for you. Yeah. I love, if anything, she was trying to get away with more mm-hmm. in that negotiation than he was. Like, because she initially is asking for him to be celibate and not yes. be with other people <laughs> while they're together. And she's like, oh, no, but I still have sexual needs. So, and he's. And she says, <laughs> I can be discreet, more discreet than you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I love that. So so anyways, his way of showing her that he's worth keeping in a way is cooking delicious meals for her. He made, oh gosh, what was it he made? It starts with a P. Some type of stew or some such. I want to say pizzole, but I think I'm making that up. It sounds very similar to that, I think. That could be it. Any, it's like a recipe from his grandfather, I think. You came up, dude, dude. Hold on. Nope. Now, so many things about recipes that are about bourbon. Is it <laughs> pozole? Sorry, I'm searching my. Nope, that's definitely not pozole. Cut that out, Stephen. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but he uh, but her way of showing that she cared about him is he reveals that he's lactose intolerant. I know. Which I thought was such a such a cute thing. I, I'm sorry, lactose intolerance isn't cute. It's actually not cute at all. But no. um, but you know, this big, strong, strapping, healthy dude is lactose intolerant. I know. And she gets him ice cream that's lactose free. Yeah. Ugh. It's it was very sweet, and it, it felt like he thought it was really sweet too. Like he stopped at his tracks and was like, "You got that for me." Like, you remembered? I don't know. For some reason, his reaction was even more adorable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Getting into the female leadership in a male-dominated secret industry. Yeah. So Hannah's mother was the matriarch of this family business before her. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like there wasn't really so much power uh, challenges within their family business because she was like a woman so you know for example it's not like her father was in charge and he died and she took over and people were like what are you gonna do little girl yeah that was not the conflict so much i feel like if if anything i don't know it was it was just very normalized in it was and i think within that family yeah i think both families recognize both Hannah and Javier both recognized how powerful their respective mothers were mm-hmm. or are and how his mother, she doesn't take any shit either. And mm-hmm. uh, the decisions that they have both made for their respective families were really impressive. And I think maybe the only, yeah, the only angst about being a female leader that Hannah has is just, you know, am I going to measure up to my mom who did, she did the most when she was living? Yeah, you're right. I don't think it's a matter of being a woman. It's just, you know, am I good enough to fill my mother's shoes? Mm-hmm. I do like how her leading, and it probably still is a very male-dominated field, or <laughs> field, 
I'm calling it like it's, you know, there's like profession career fairs about it. But yeah, uh, it is it is very male dominated. But I like how in this book, it was pretty, we were pretty chill about that. And Mm -hmm. I loved how so there's such a the trope, I think, in so many books is you have this character, a female character who is like very competent, but then somehow still finds herself in trouble at the end and gets rescued by the you know a hero i think particularly in heterosexual cisgender romances that happens a lot and it was so refreshing that in the final confrontation there is a very dangerous moment and oh yeah you don't see javier rushing in because he has complete faith that hannah can handle herself yes like yes they're talking about it later and she says this is also talking a little bit about is he intimidated by her being in that position of power she says and seeing me up there with that gun to bear its head that didn't make you i shrugged that didn't freak you out or make you think twice about being with me Mm -hmm. javier looked at me like i'd grown two heads hannah what else was there for you to do i ain't going to say i enjoyed seeing you in so much danger but i thought you handled it beautifully you did what needed to be done what a leader would have done yes yes perfect (laughs) i love that about him it was we're going to come up with a plan together, but ultimately, I mean, Hannah's going to be the badass who executes it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody is working together, man and woman, and they are going to, I mean, it's guerrilla warfare. They're all going to jump in and save the mountain. One thing I did highlight was when she shot this fool <laughs> in the shoulder. <laughs> yes. He yells, bitch. He called out through gritted teeth and she says, I'm a bitch who's this close to signing your death warrant. That's for damn sure. (laughs) And I was like, what? Take it back. Take back the bitch. (laughs) I love that. She, oh my God, she was amazing. And everybody who played their part was amazing. Even in, I think one character on their side gets shot, but she doesn't lose her cool. She's like, you know, get so-and-so to the hospital, do it quick, and then get back Mm -hmm. in formation. They have a crazy good plan and they, they take advantage of their strengths. There's none of this like misplaced naivete or faith in the baddies to Mm -hmm. play by the same rules that they're playing with. Mm -hmm. I like how, I feel like for the safety of the reader, and you know, look, there's some books where people, where the main characters murder people, and you're like, yeah, that was justified. (laughs) But in this book, they make kind of like a very clear ground rule, like, we don't want to murder people. No. Okay? Like, we're going to protect our land. We know that the other guys are okay with murdering us, but like, we draw the line there. We, but I mean, we'll be violent in other ways, sure. But, yeah. you know, like shoot their shoulders, don't shoot their hearts. Yeah. I, and I appreciated that because I feel like it just, it helped us kind of make sure that we were clear on who the good guys were here. Right. In this world. Yeah. So anyway, so the plan that they came up with, it was so smart because it wasn't like, oh, well, and then if trouble happens, we'll just shoot them all. It <laughs> it was like very organized and like take advantage of the fact that we know these woods and like, yes. let's cause confusion and disperse them and take away whatever advantages they have and use our advantages. Mm-hmm. And oh, like, it was just it was such good competence porn, honestly. Yes. I love a good plan. I love it when it's executed well. And uh, only a only one person got hurt. So that's fine. Yeah. And he I think he was like a little proud of it. Yeah, he, he's gonna wear it like a badge. Um, <laughs> exactly. And then she's going to like promote 
him and his friend. <laughs> yeah. So like one from each family. Yeah. And she recognizes good work and wants to, she's also really cagey too. She knows that this will make them closer as a two families and give mm-hmm. people some encouragement to keep working together. Yeah, she was a fantastic leader. I think seeing her lead the meetings mm-hmm. that she has at various points where she's assertive and she knows how to kind of help people manage their emotions productively. Like she's not going to ignore that people have emotions about what's happening. Mm-hmm. She's going to kind of like take it and head on. And I love that by the end of this story, what I feel like is set up to happen in the future is that now that the families are joined in this marriage, it's like they are really going to merge because they do at this point understand that they're stronger together. Mm-hmm. And like her and Javier are literally merged. They're going to, they are talking about having kids together. Um, there's this acknowledgement that Javier's parents are getting older and are going to step back eventually. And it's not like then Javier becomes the leader, it's almost more like, and then Hannah's just going to lead us all. And, but then I'm also here kind of representing my side of the family until, Mm. and kind of like, okay, no, look, we all have the same interests at heart here. Like she's not going to betray me. I'm not going to betray her. And then by working together, now we're going to start to feel this sense of community together. Yes. And then it will just kind of happen. Yeah. I think it'll, yeah, end up being really organic. There was like a little bit of revenge fantasy in this. The baddies get their comeuppance. Yes. There's that nice sort of like feeling of resolution where there's no question about how I see them going on into the future and like kind of how they're going to deal with the fact that they're still these like separate family organizations. Like I feel them merging together. You see it happening. And this book also had lots of really great sex. Oh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the sex. <laughs> let's talk about sex. Yeah. So, I mean, they have a lot of tension Mm -hmm. with the husband and wife calling back and forth and the banter and whatnot. But it was that trip to what, Louisville? Nashville? Nashville? Yeah. Where they had only one bed? Only one bed. And oh my God, I, I was crowing when the the desk person was like, oh, but you know, this is how you reserved it. And oh, you wanted an early check-in. Oh, but uh, Mm -hmm. it's my favorite. She goes, I was going to have to suck it the fuck up and share a bed with my husband, even if the thought of it scared me out of my damn mind. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think she was, she was doing so much objecting at the checkout desk. Javier was like, oh, it's, come on, let's just go. Mm -hmm. It's fine. (laughs) They take a oh. little nap and then, oh, oh my we God, wake up nap. and we're spooning and, oh, your hand is uh, yes. just, uh, mm, I loved it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The always being, what's his deal? He's like always behind her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. And then going to the club, the gen bar that night and the dancing and, Oh my gosh! And him carrying her back to the hotel because her I feet love... hurt in the sh- in the heels. Yes, but she was also kind of nervous about like you know being her size and well, people don't usually carry me, and I don't know mm-hmm. when the last time that happened was. But he was like, you know, girl, get on my back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that Jody Slaughter, like her writing, was so beautiful around talking about Hannah's body and Javier's 
perception of her body. Like, this is something that has come up in several books. And there is this kind of question about like, how, how do you describe bodies in a way that isn't like fetishizing at any size? And it is so loving how her body is described in this book, like her like little stomach pooch and like her, yes, her full thighs, the way he sees her is so beautiful. And I just loved it. I don't know if I can quite even just explain how or why. No, I know what you mean. It was just beautifully done. There are like subtleties too, where, you know, after their their nap and they're groping each other and canoodling, she says like, my shirt was rolled up or something, but I didn't even care as I walked to the bathroom. And for me, you know, my shirt's rolled up and my gut's hanging out. I I would feel a little self-conscious about that. But reading it from her perspective, Hannah, I was like, oh, okay, you know, do your thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, something about that subtlety made me feel really excited as a reader. Mm -hmm. But yeah, oh, geez. Can we talk about the uh, on top of the the hood and the rain please yes yes and let's also talk about this because hold on do i have it handy uh this was in we talked about this in the superlatives episode oh my god hold on i have like the printout here okay so charlotte nominated white whiskey bargain for the best use of natural elements a rainstorm and human made elements hood of a car in a single sex scene yes i'm i'm gonna agree with her that was (laughs) amazing i've got a quote here gosh it was something really cute about him having to ice his knees later oh yeah oh my god i'm too damn old to be kneeling like that for so long (laughs) yes yes Uh, but it was worth it (laughs) yeah i loved that their sexual encounters were very focused on her pleasure Mm -hmm. particularly at the beginning like i don't know like the first three sexual encounters they have are basically all about her yes with no expectation of reciprocation which i love yeah and i mean and she's unapologetic about yeah taking what he is offering i think twice maybe (laughs) yeah oh yes yeah and it's like it's raining and she's like, oh, this is actually kind of making it a little sexier. Like, I agree. Yeah. It was, oh, the writing of the sex scenes was like, it was very frank. It mm-hmm. was very elemental and raw. Mm-hmm. And neither of them had, you know, I mean, there's always a little bit of awkwardness about stuff, but they didn't have a lot of, like, they weren't like apologizing or awkward. They're like, this is what I'm into. Oh, you're into that? Fantastic. I'm into this. Yeah. I think I was really shocked by the rawness of the mutual masturbation scene yeah but it was also really comforting that they were being supportive of one another i mean she just suggests that because he came home and had a from a hard day of kidnapping people (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's like she's like what would you normally do in this situation he's like i'd probably jerk off and she's like all right cool let's up it a little bit meet me upstairs (laughs) Go take a shower first, but then meet me upstairs. (laughs) And I thought that was like a really, I don't know, I feel awkward saying this, but a really supportive and nurturing way for her to acknowledge his feelings and share something with him in this really intimate, of course it's intimate, manner that just felt like really safe for the both of them, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I just want to mention this because you don't see it often, and it was just such a non-issue, and I love that representation of her pulling out a sex toy for herself. Yes. And it was just, you know. No big deal. No big deal. He's not like, oh, what, like my dick isn't good enough for you, or like, (laughs) you know, he was like, oh, okay, I see she has this, cool, great, like we're both going to have a good time here. Right. (laughs) She pulls out some lube, she's like, this is for you. I know. Oh, this is nice. (laughs) Very polite of her. (laughs) Yeah. There's toys and material for everybody. (laughs) I do feel like this was just a very nice way of showing how people can approach uh, these intimate moments in a way that is supportive. And I feel like there's so much about sex that is unspoken. Mm. And I think this is perpetuated in a lot of romance novels where it's in contemporaries in particular, this bothers me where it's like the heroine has never touched herself before and <laughs> yes. it like needs a man to show her what she likes. Yeah, that I do find that a little odd because uh, in this day and age, I mean, it's not like it's historical, but even I've read a ton of historicals where ladies are fingering themselves. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm trying to remember the one I read, a historical I read recently, the heroine said something about like, yeah, I had like done these explorations in the bathtub or yeah, something where even with a lot of societal shame attached to doing it, people have always and will always explore their bodies. Mm-hmm. They may not talk about it with anybody else. Right. So I think in a contemporary, especially, and seeing it in this relationship, the way they just normalized yeah their own self-care self-sexual care how they supported the others self-care when it came to sex yeah it's just beautiful it is it is yeah i i'm all about it everything that jody slaughter wrote was just uh, exquisite <laughs> and have you read anything else by jody slaughter no this was my first uh book of hers so i'm i gotta go backwards now i gotta get into that backlist but she's got something coming out on valentine's day that just one more yes a valentine's day novella exactly so i'm looking forward to that okay let's see tattoo artist whitney harris loves valentine's day oh, oh and then the only thing victor grant enjoys more than being a barber is valentine's day Oh, (laughs) a near disastrous first meeting brings them together, but with both chemistry and desire running high, one sexy night together doesn't feel nearly enough like true satisfaction. Of course not. Yes. Okay. I love it. I'm so ready. Yeah, I'm an instant fan. So I'm gonna get back into the backlist and work my way up. Oh, real quick. I did want to read a quote that made me scream. And Go ahead. My, my husband was like, oh, my God, are you OK? Um, <laughs> but it's the the grits conversation. Oh, yeah. Grits in, for breakfast. And that's when he accidentally lets it slip. Oh, yeah. She goes, what? You don't like my grits? Those brown eyes got all big and round. And he says, they ain't good, Hannah. You put sugar in them. And she's like, you eat them still, though. And he says, I only do it because I love you. I stopped abruptly and swallowed. (laughs) So he's only eating her grits because he loves her. And he blurted that out and they have to deal with it. And they deal with it. Yeah. And then he's like, he, it's like he sits and he thinks and he's like, no, I love her. I'm going to tell her. And then he does it. Like, he's like, I love you. I love you. Yeah, uh, that's it. And, and she loves him. 
<laughs> it's very mature, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think they they flagellate themselves over this, you know, do I love him? What do I say? When do I say it? It just mm-hmm. happens very organically, and they take it in stride. Yeah. It was a great book. It's so good. And I'm so happy that Jodie Slaughter is writing more stuff. It looks like other than the Valentine book, she has another book called All Things Burn, a BWWM hitman romance. Okay. Uh, Is that a black woman, white man? I think so. And I think I may have seen a cover of that a while back. And so, okay, this came out May 2019. So that's that's another one to check out. It seems like she's uh, fairly new on the scene. Okay. And she's self-publishing. Yes. As far as I can tell. So, wow. She's knocking them out of the park. And I feel like, did you say the other one was about a hitman? Yes. So it seems like she does romance, suspenseful romance really well. Because I feel like this white whiskey bargain could kind of be considered suspense with all of the drama that happens at the end. Yeah. And I think that there's also an element of like subverting maybe like the white knight trope. Yeah, exactly. Like more moral ambiguity, I think. And uh, I think a lot of people like that. I think that especially when there's like a little bit of like a, let's say a Robin Hood element where yeah, it's not like selfish. It's like, yeah, sure. I do things that are probably illegal and morally ambiguous, but like it's for a good cause. <laughs> well, and I think I'm, I'm dealing with some of that with this heist stuff. Cause you don't want your thief to be a complete asshole to make sure that the people that they're stealing from are the assholes. Exactly. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So, you know, uh, if uh, Jody Slaughter's hitman is taking out a, I don't know, a dictator that's killed millions, maybe we're all good for it. Maybe, <laughs> We're yeah. all for the better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or like, I always think about Dexter. Oh, yes. Like, yeah. If you make a serial killer who just kills like really bad people who are murdering innocent people, like, yeah, we can all get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> Man, sorry. So. Ma- I keep saying we all. I have no problem with it. <laughs> but I'm inclined to agree with you. And I everybody loves a good anti-hero, I think. Yeah. So, Cherish, where can listeners find you? And what should we watch out next from you? There aren't very many Cherish reads out there. So you can find me on Twitter at, at author Cherish. Instagram is something very similar to that. I'll put the links in the show notes. So, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> uh, but mostly on Twitter and Instagram. And at the moment, like I said before, I don't know when the listeners are going to hear this, but February 3rd, the release of my second novel comes out Hearts on Hold. Uh, librarians and professors making out in the stacks, that kind of stuff. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Is that just all that's on the back of the book? Just like librarians <laughs> and professors making out in the stacks. And that's really all people needed. <laughs> just, nice. <laughs> the other shit goes on in the book, of course. But yeah, that's all you really need to know, listeners, is that <laughs> hot librarians and hot professors are doing it. <laughs> and that's really about it. I'm still working on book three, of course, and that's going to take a while. But, you know, they can catch up on The Right Escape and Hearts on Hold. Those are basically out. Thanks for listening to episode 30 of Shelf Love, a romance novel book club. 
Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode and where to find Cherish Read. You can also find links to sign up for the Shelf Love email newsletter or find Shelf Love on social media. Also, if you want to whisper sweet nothings into my inbox, you can email me at andrea at shelflovepodcast.com or shout the sweet nothings into the void by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Coming up next, Megan Erickson and I explore prison planet romances. Also, a compilation episode where my guests bust common myths and misconceptions about romance, plus more from the Decameron Quarantine Romance Book Club miniseries. Make sure you're subscribed to Shelf Love on your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss an episode. Did you know that Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network? You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.